0: Great to see you here at the EU public meeting. My name's Rowan Kemp for those of you who I haven't met in person. Uh, I'm senior staff working here with the EU. And what we're going to be doing over these, this week and the next two weeks is finishing off a bit of a journey that we started way back of week one of this year. We started looking at John's gospel, uh, the, the account written by John the eyewitness of Jesus' life, death, ministry and resurrection. And what we're going to do over these next three weeks is sort of conclude our sort of wander through John's gospel, try to wrap it all up in these last three weeks. So as we get into that, why don't I lead us in a prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for revealing your truth to us in your word in the Christian scriptures. And we pray, Father, that as we reflect on it today together, that as you promised, you would lead us into the truth we might actually hear you speak through your word as you promised. So that we might know better all that you have done for us. So that we might be able to live lives that please and reflect uh, the truth that you've shown us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I have a bit of a confession to make. I love conspiracy theories. Now, conspiracy theories are a bit, bit strange, really. Um, most of them probably aren't true. But, gee, they, they're intriguing. I mean... Why, when you look at pictures of man standing on the moon, why are there no stars? I mean, there should be stars. In fact, they should be brighter than we would see because we have this atmosphere that clouds them. But when you see pictures of sort of Neil Armstrong standing on the moon, there's no stars. That's because the photos are fake. They were all actually just set up in a sort of NASA studio and man never went to the moon. It was all just part of sort of the Cold War and American propaganda that they got there. It's intriguing. Probably not true, but gee, it's a good story. And there's heaps and heaps of great um, conspiracy stories. Uh, Crop circles. Why would any decent farmer go and sort of make sort of a crop circle in the middle of his crops and ruin good crops? I mean, they must be made by sort of spaceships from outer space. Or what about fluoride in the water? I remember talking to a person who actually was telling me the reason the fluoride is in the water is because the government is trying to control what you think. It's all part of a conspiracy, and look how many bottled water drinkers we see around here today. Yes, you believe it too. Well, anyway, uh, another whole genre of conspiracy theories are royal conspiracies. Um, I don't know if you have heard some of the conspiracies around the death of Lady Diana, that actually it was a setup. It was all part of a great plan to get rid of her, or a conspiracy, as a, a real one perpetuated in the Nepali royal family where the crown prince uh, took out the rest of his family. He actually killed off the whole family um, and it was something he actually did. It wasn't just a conspiracy theory, it was a real conspiracy that he actually enacted and took out. Or if you're any student of history, you'll know that uh, royal history is littered with lots and lots of conspiracies to do away with the king or queen, the one in power. I wonder why it is that royal conspiracies have a particular fascination. My thought is that it's because a royal conspiracy takes you to the centre of power. It takes you right where the sort of the, the most powerful people are. If, you can, if they can manage to take out that person, then well, then they can rise to power themselves. The reason I'm talking about this is because what we're going to look at today in John's account of Jesus Uh, Arrest and trial, is we're looking at what I would say to you is the greatest, the greatest royal conspiracy ever. I I would challenge you to come up with any royal conspiracy that would outdo this one for its implications, for just its uh, sheer significance. The greatest royal conspiracy ever. Now, as I said before, we've been working through John's Gospel this year, John's account of Jesus' ministry. And earlier this semester, we started looking at from John chapter 13 through to chapter 17, which all sort of occurred on the night before Jesus finally would die. What we're doing today is we're picking up the story at John chapter 18, which is part of that same evening. From John 13 through to John 18, all happens on one night. It's a fairly in-depth account of one night of Jesus' life. It's the night before Jesus would die. And uh, what he's doing on this night, first of all, he prepares his closest followers, the disciples, for what's about to happen. And we saw there in John chapter 17 that he prays. And now what we're doing is seeing what happens next. We're seeing how Jesus' death actually comes about. We're seeing this conspiracy to take Jesus' life put into action. We've known actually for a long time, if you've been reading through John's Gospel, that the religious leaders of the day wanted Jesus' death. Jesus was a troublemaker for them. He was a threat and they wanted to take him out. You can follow it uh, all the way back to chapter 7 verse 1. You can see there that they were plotting to take his life. Or chapter 11 verse 53, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, they resolve they've got to get rid of this guy. He's way too powerful. His following is way too strong. So they resolve to take his life. And what we see here is their conspiracy, their plan roll into motion already Judas has been sent out earlier on this night he's been sent out by Jesus himself and he's gone to get the police and the other uh, people from the authorities to arrest Jesus and now we're going to see how that takes place now I have a question for you to consider as we look through this section just this section today which we're going to start at chapter 18 verse 1 and go through to chapter 19 verse 16 that's the sort of the section we're going to look at an overview today My question for you is this. Why has John, the eyewitness, why has he spent so long recording these particular events of Jesus' arrest and then his two trials, his trial with the Jewish authorities and then his trial with the Roman authorities? Why has he spent so long describing this for us? What's so significant about it? I mean, John's had to be very selective in what he's recorded for you. If you flick to the very end of John's Gospel, if you've got John's Gospel there with you, Or if you don't, you might be able to read along with the person next to you. Flick to the very last sentence that John writes for us in his gospel. John chapter 21, verse 25. John 21, 25. And John writes there, But there are also many other things that Jesus did. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Simple point, Jesus did heaps and heaps of stuff in his three years of public ministry. Why has John then, having to be so selective, why has he spent so much time on Jesus' arrest and trial? What's so significant about it? That's the question I'm going to come to, back to at the end and uh, share some thoughts I have, but you might like to have your own thoughts you can share with me after uh, over afternoon tea. Now if you haven't read through this section of John's Gospel Um, it would be a really good thing for you to maybe do that over the course of the next week because we are going to be spending some time in these couple of chapters over these next three weeks it's only five pages it's a very quick read but may I say it's a quick read but it'll do wonders for your soul it's a really great read these five chapters so maybe you can make a bit of time this week just to read it and to think about it and to see what God has to say to us here Okay, well let's get started onto this. John chapter 18 is where we are. You might like to turn that up. You can see I've given you a very thorough outline on which to take notes. Uh, I'll give you some headings as we go along, just so that uh, you can sort of uh, keep the structure together of what we're talking about today. My first heading is this, Jesus' arrest, Jesus' arrest. A subheading there, Jesus steps forward, Jesus steps forward. We're looking here, chapter 18, verses 1 to 11. Here's stage one of the conspiracy. They want to do away with Jesus. The first thing they've got to do is get their hands on him. They've got to take him into custody. Now that's not going to be so easy, because Jesus is very popular. And I think it's significant that they're doing it at night. That's when they judge it to be the most easiest time to do it, under the cover of darkness. But what actually stands out in this account of Jesus' arrest is that Jesus is in control. Now, this is a very odd thing. I'm sure you know from your own experience of being arrested that normally... No, you don't... Well, no, I haven't had that experience either, actually. But if you're going to be arrested, usually you're not in control of the situation. All right? You're normally sort of the passive one in an arrest situation. What you notice here when you read this account is actually, who's really in control here? It just seems that Jesus is in control. Let me try to show that to you from looking at a couple of different things in this narrative of Jesus' arrest. First of all, Jesus steps forward here in his arrest, not ignorantly. He steps forward knowingly. He steps forward knowingly. You can see that there in verse 4 of chapter 18. John writes there. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward. They come to arrest him with their lights and their lanterns and their weapons at night. Jesus can hear them all and knowing all that was to happen to him, knowing that they've come to arrest him, knowing that they're going to put him on trial, knowing that they're going to kill him, he steps forward. He doesn't run away. He comes forward to meet them. Jesus goes into this knowingly. Not ignorantly. Actually, Jesus had known all along that his ministry was going to end in his death. You can go all the way back to John chapter 2, right there at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. The way John records it, it's the very first thing that Jesus does publicly is he goes to the temple and clears out the temple. And that sort of sets the religious authorities on edge and they say, Jesus... Give us some sign to show us that you've got authority to do this in the temple of God. And Jesus' response there in chapter 2, verse 19 to 21, he says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. There's my answer for you, he says. That's the sign I give. Destroy this temple. And then John records for us, but Jesus was speaking about his body. Jesus is saying, destroy this temple. And I'll raise it again in three days. Jesus had known right from the very beginning that the great sign of who he is, the great sign of his authority would be his own death at their hands. You destroy this temple. He'd known right from the beginning. That's how the ministry would climax. So he steps forward knowingly. But secondly, he steps forward not accidentally, he steps forward deliberately. So you can know what's going to happen to you and you can accidentally, oops, step into it. No, he knew what was going to happen, and he stepped into it deliberately. You can see that again there in verse four, knowing all that was to happen to him, Jesus came forward. It's also there in verse eleven. In verse ten, um, Peter decide the, the disciple decides to put up a bit of a, a bit of resistance. He pulls out his short sword and swipes off the ear of the one of the slaves of the high priest who is there. And what's Jesus' response at that point in verse eleven? He says, Great, Peter, you set up a bit of a sort of a bit of a distraction, a bit of defence, and I'm going to whiz through the garden and hop over the wall, and I'll catch up with you later somewhere else at our secret rendezvous. Is that, is that what No, that's not what Jesus says. Look what he actually says there in verse eleven. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? Actually, the languages should be rendered stronger there. In the original, it's much more emphatic. It's more like, I will surely drink the cup the Father has given me. There's no doubt that I'm going to drink this cup. He steps forward accepting the cup that the Father has given him to drink. Now, the metaphor of the cup there, probably it's worth us spending a a little while here thinking about that. The cup is obviously a metaphor here for whatever the Father has prepared for Jesus to accept. Certainly it's thinking about the suffering and death that Jesus was about to undergo. But I also I wonder if we're meant to hear here echoes from the Old Testament of a particular cup that the Father was holding out here. A particular cup maybe of God's wrath Let me um, show you why I think that. You might, if you've got an Old Testament there, flick with me to Jeremiah 25. It's not a passage maybe that you're terribly familiar with, but it's a really helpful passage to look up, I think, in this regard. Jeremiah chapter 25. In particular, in Jeremiah 25, I want to start looking from verse 15. And we see here this use of the cup as imagery. have a look here Jeremiah chapter 25 verse 15 this is what Jeremiah the prophet writes for thus the Lord the God of Israel said to me take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it they shall drink and stagger and go out of their minds because of the sword that I am sending among them Jeremiah comments so I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it and then he lists the nations who have to drink from this cup and the first one's a bit of a shock Jerusalem and the towns of Judah that's God's own people have to drink from this cup of God's rock Ju- Jerusalem and the towns of Judah it's kings and officials to make them a desolation and a waste an object of hissing and of cursing As they are today. And then he lists some other nations. Pharaoh king of Egypt. His servants, his officials and all his people. All the mixed people. All the kings of the land of Uz. All the kings of the land of the Philistines. Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron. And so he goes on. Jump down to verse 26. All the kings of the north. Far and near. One after another. All the kingdoms of the world. That are on the face of the earth. And after them the king of Sheshach shall drink. Here's a picture of God's wrath poured out on all the nations of the world, including His own people. You've got to ask, why? Why is this happening? Well, the answer to that is a bit earlier in the chapter. Go a bit earlier in Jeremiah 25. Go to verses, say, 3 to 7. You'll see why. Particularly here, thinking about God's own people, the nation of Israel. Jeremiah comments... For 23 years, 23 years from the 13th year of King Josiah son of Ammon of Judah to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. And though the Lord persistently sent you all his servants, the prophets, you have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear. When they said, turn now, every one of you, from your evil way and wicked doings, And you'll remain upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your ancestors from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them. Do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. That is making of idols. You make idols with your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Then Jeremiah comments. Yet you did not listen to me, says the Lord. And so you have provoked me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. And then he goes on to describe how what this cup of wrath will be. He'll be sending them into exile at the hands of the Babylonians. This cup here in Jeremiah 25 is a picture of God's just wrath even against his own people for their abandonment of him. Now that's a, that's a really important point just to have in your mind because I think that forms part of the background for rightly understanding what's going on in John 18 and 19. This cup of wrath is the cup of wrath that comes to even God's own people because of their rejection of God. So what I'm suggesting to you here is that in the whole picture of the Bible, when we read John 18 and 19, in the light of the whole Bible, we can see here that Jesus is saying, I'm stepping forward to drink this cup that the Father holds out for me. And I'm suggesting to you that this is the cup of God's wrath that He's going to drink. Okay, so that's the second point. Jesus steps forward not accidentally but deliberately to take this cup from his Father. Third point here is that Jesus steps forward not under compulsion but in command. He steps forward not under compulsion but in command. Let's have a look there back in John chapter 18 verses 5 to 9. John 18, 5 to 9. Actually, I'll start at the end of verse 4. Jesus comes forward and asks them, Whom are you looking for? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus replied, I am. Literally, that's what it should say. I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Whom are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he'd spoken. I did not lose a single one of those whom you gave me. See, who's in control here? They come to arrest this dude from Nazareth, Jesus. But who do they meet? They meet this person whose name is I am. Now, I am is the name that the one true God had revealed to his people. That's his own name. If you go back, right back to Exodus, Moses, who's being sent by God to lead God's people out of slavery in Egypt. Moses says to God, But God, if I go to them and they say, Who sent you? What name will I give them? And the name that God gives is I am. Say that I am has sent you. And now here's Jesus saying, who are you looking for? They say, Jesus from Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am. What response do they make when he says that? Well, the only response that can happen if you actually met God face to face. They fall back on the ground. Who's in control here? This handful of soldiers who've come to arrest this dude from Nazareth? No. The one who's in control is the great I am. I am. Jesus, God, incarnate, God come amongst us. Uh, Jesus had used this phrase, I am, to talk about himself as God earlier in John's Gospel. It's not the first time it happens. Three times it happens actually in John chapter 8. In particular, if you want to look it up later, John chapter 8 verse 58 very clearly is another occasion where Jesus talks about himself as I am and everybody around understands him to be equating himself with God. Very clearly it's a divine title. He is the great I am, God himself come amongst us as a creature, as this creature Jesus of Nazareth. And you can see that Jesus is in control here, not just in the great I am, but also in the way he then directs proceedings. In particular, he tells them what to do in verse 8. He says, let the disciples go and just take me. And that's what they do. They follow his direction. And that actually reminds us of earlier in John chapter 10 where Jesus described himself, again in language from the Old Testament, as the good shepherd who'd lay down his life for the sheep. He lays down his life of his own choice so that the sheep can run away free. Here's Jesus stepping forward and saying, Take me, let them go. And that's exactly what happens. And you can see um, there in verse 9, John, John points out that it's Jesus' agenda that's running the show here. It's his promises that govern the outcome of the events. So there's the third point, that Jesus steps forward not under compulsion here, but in command. The final point I want to make here is that Jesus steps forward not for some mysterious reasons, not for reasons unknown. Jesus steps forward here, I would say, out of love. Now, if you just read these 11 verses at the beginning of chapter 18, it's not exactly clear why Jesus is doing what he's doing. The motivation isn't apparent there in the text. But remember what I said to you at the beginning, that chapter 13 all the way through to chapter 18 all happen on one night. It's meant to be read as a unity. And actually if you go all the way back to John 13 verse 1, that forms a bit of a title, a bit of a heading for all the events that happen in this time frame. So if you go back to John 13 verse 1, you can see how John summarises all that's happening. And what he says there is this. John 13 verse 1, he says, Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart the world and go to the Father. And here's the key sentence. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's what's going on in all these events. He loves them to the end. He shows them the full extent of his love. That's what's happening here. The incredible outworking of Jesus' astounding love for his people. Love not only for his people, but obedient love to his Father. He loves his Father and therefore he's going to be obedient to what his Father wants him to do and accept the cup the Father holds out. But also incredible sacrificial love for his disciples, for his people, that he will step forward so that they can go free. So the answer to question, why did he do this? Why did he do it? Because he loves. That's why he did it. He deliberately steps forward to grasp this cup out of love. Sacrificial love for us. For you. That's why he stepped forward on that night 2,000 years ago. Was for your sake. So that you, by extension, might go for it. Why did he do this? Why did he accept this cup? The cup that was going to mean his suffering, his death. Why did he accept this cup? Because that was the only way that you might live. That he, the good shepherd, might... He had to lay down his life so that you could live, so that you could have forgiveness of sins, so that you could have eternal life in his name. He had to go through this to win you life. Why did he do this? He, the great I Am. He, the Word who is with God, the Word who was God, the Word come amongst us in flesh. Why did He do this? Because He is love. He's God. God is love. He is never more clearly God than when He stepped forward and accepted all that would come as a result of that night. When He gave up His life in obedience to his Father, in sacrifice for you, that was when he was most clearly God in that sacrifice of love. That's why he did this. Now I've just spent a long time thinking about just Jesus' arrest and I've done that deliberately. The sort of whole passage from 18 verse 1 through to 19, 16 is sort of in three sections as I said before. Jesus' arrest, then Jesus' Jewish trial, and then Jesus' Roman trial. And I spent most of my time just on his arrest. That's because sometimes I think we sort of skip over that bit and just focus on the other two bits, you know, because it's got the stuff about Peter's denial and it's got Jesus confronting the religious leaders and Pilate and all that sort of stuff. I spent most of the time on the arrest because I think it's what we skip over and also I think it's actually there that you get some pretty important insights into all that's about to happen, where you see Jesus, the great I am, stepping forward. Stepping forward knowingly. Stepping forward in command and accepting all that is about to happen. He doesn't happen as a victim in the rest of these events. He steps forward as the great I Am who's doing it out of love, in command. That's why I spent most of my time there. What I'm going to do now is give you the briefest of overviews of the next two phases. The two trials of Jesus. First of all, Jesus' Jewish trial, which is there from chapter 18, verse 12. To, through to verse 27 that's Jesus' Jewish trial 1812 to 27 and then Jesus' Roman trial which starts in verse 18 verse 28 and goes through to 1916 1828 to 1916 just going to give you the briefest of overviews there we don't have time again to read through it all uh, it would be great for you to go away and read it this week let me just point out a few things first of all Jesus' Jewish trial fascinating thing about this is actually there's two people on trial in this little account here There's Jesus on trial with the religious leaders. And there's Peter, the disciple, on trial outside. Peter's being questioned about his allegiance to Jesus, his association with Jesus, at the same time as Jesus being questioned about his identity on the inside. And the way John's done it is different to all the other Gospel writers, to Matthew, Mark and Luke. The way John's done it, he actually intersperses the two accounts. The focus starts with Jesus, flips out to Peter, then back to Jesus, back out to Peter. Why does he do this? None of the other Gospel writers do this. They all have Peter's denials, but not interspersed like this. Why? Is, what's, John's, what's John's point that he's trying to emphasise to us? So we're going to think a little bit about that. But I want to give you, first of all, just a bit of a key to understanding some of what goes on here in Jesus' Jewish trial. When you read about the interactions between Jesus and the... the um, High priestly authorities. It can become a little bit confusing. It's not exactly sure what Jesus is talking about. The key thing you need to realise, I think, to make sense of this account is that the Jews had a particular process for putting somebody on trial. And we know this from other sources outside the Bible, sort of been passed down to us. We have an understanding of what their proper legal process was. In particular, they couldn't question you about a particular crime, if they thought you were the perpetrator. They 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 weren't allowed to question you until they'd established that a crime had been committed. Some illegality had been perpetrated through the testimony of witnesses. So the first tip is you've got to check via witnesses that something has happened that shouldn't have happened. Once that's been established, then yes, they can question you about it. Right? That's a key point that you need to have locked in your brain that will then make sense of the things that Jesus says so let's now have a look at that if you look there we're in chapter 18 go there to verse 19 then the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching so the first thing we get is them questioning Jesus not eyewitnesses and then notice Jesus' response Jesus answered I've spoken openly to the world I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together I've said nothing in secret why do you ask me? Ask those who heard what I said to them they know what I said that is he's not trying to deflect attention from himself he's saying "There's a proper. you have your own proper process why are you asking me? I've spoken everything properly there's hundreds of witnesses why are you asking me? You should be asking them, shouldn't you? If you're righteous, if this is a righteous court. That's his first reply. Notice they don't like this, verse 22. When he said this, one of the police standing nearby struck Jesus on the face saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? But Jesus won't be swayed. He continues on. Jesus answered, If I've spoken wrongly, that is about this proper process, if I've spoken wrongly, testify to the wrong." But if I've spoken rightly about this process, why do you strike me? So Jesus' concern is about the illegality of their proceedings. This is not a righteous court. Well, I mean, they don't like that. Verse 24, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. They get rid of it. That might help you understand sort of what's going on there in the dialogue second thing I want to point out to you just about this section is the interweaving of these two trials. Jesus on the inside, but Peter on the outside. You'll know the story maybe of Peter's denial. Jesus had prophesied earlier in the same evening that Peter would deny him three times. Because earlier in the evening, back in chapter 13, um, Jesus had said, You can't follow me where I'm about to go. And Peter, I mean, Peter was a very keen follower of Jesus. And Peter had said, But Lord, why can't I follow you? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, will you lay down your life? Before the cock crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times. This very night, you're going to say you don't even belong to me. Three times. And what we see here in the trial scenes is that come true. Three times Peter denies any association with Jesus. What, what's the significance of that? I think the significance of that is it shows us that Jesus takes this cup from his father alone. They all abandon him. Just as Jesus had said earlier in chapter 16 that he said they will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. They will all abandon him. And when he's on trial with Pilate he's brought out before all the people and No one speaks up for Jesus. He's completely abandoned. So as you see him on the inside undergoing his trial with the Jewish authorities, him being righteous in the face of their unrighteousness, on the outside you get even his closest disciples, Peter, abandoning him, leaving him to it. And there's a salutary lesson there, I think, in Peter's denial. I mean, the main point of it, I think, is about Jesus and the unique ministry he had of taking this cup from his father But there is a salutary lesson there about how easy it is to deny Jesus. Paul the Apostle writes in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 that if you think you'll stand, watch out that you don't fall. It's very easy to look at Peter and go, Peter, come on, man, you, you talk big, you wave your sword around for a bit, but when you're questioned by a few people standing in a courtyard around a fire, you go, I don't even know the guy. I'm not one of his followers. And it's easy to look at that and go, oh, Peter, how hopeless. Friends, we've got to watch out that we don't fall. When the smallest bit of pressure is sometimes applied to your faith, will you stand by your allegiance, your commitment to the Lord Jesus? It can happen in the smallest of ways, can't it? I mean, I sometimes think if someone came and helped, you know, threatened us with death, deny Jesus or die, at that point sometimes I think we we think, yep, well I'd I'd like to think that I'll say, No, I will not deny him, my Lord. But when someone just sits next to us and says, Oh, you're a Christian, aren't you? He says, oh, I'll go to church a bit. You know, it's so easy to just pull back. There's a salutary lesson there, I think, in the example and temptation that Peter faced. So let's move very quickly then to the last section which is Jesus' Roman trial. And again, we're not going to work through this. I just want to give you a few things just to hook your own understanding on in Jesus' Roman trial. The big issue in Jesus' Roman trial is this. The big issue is this. Who has the ultimate authority? Who has the ultimate authority? Who is king? And I'll just take you to a few key points in this and you can see some answers to this question. Let's look in the middle of this section, verse 10 of chapter 19. Who has the ultimate authority? Look at verse 10 of chapter 19. Pilate there is questioning Jesus. Pilate therefore said to Jesus, Do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have power to release you and power to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Jesus knows who has the ultimate authority. It is God. God has given Pilate whatever power he has. Jesus knows where the ultimate authority is. It is God and therefore God's Christ, God's King, the one he has chosen to rule. That's who has the ultimate authority. But what you see in the rest of the Jesus Roman trial is you see other people's thoroughgoing rejection of God as King. Their thoroughgoing rejection of God as the ultimate authority. Let's read straight on there and you'll see Pilate's rejection of this authority. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to release Jesus. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're no friend of the emperor. You're no friend of Caesar. Everyone who claims to be a king sets himself against the emperor. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside and sat on the judge's bench at a place called the stone pavement. And then he goes on and commits Jesus to death. There's a very explicit choice. Who's the ultimate authority here? Caesar or the Christ? And Pilate makes his choice. I'll go with Caesar, thank you. And we can sacrifice this guy called Christ. He makes his choice. A short-sighted, I would say, political game over the death of an innocent man. That's Pilate's choice. He's convinced of Jesus' innocence, if you read the account, yet he condemns him out of fear He chooses Caesar over Christ. Well, what about the Jewish people who are there? And we'll finish with this. The Jewish people there. Let's read on, verses 14 to 15. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about noon. So Pilate said to the Jews, Here is your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate asked them, Shall I crucify your king? And this is, I think, the darkest verse in the Bible. The darkest verse in the Bible. The chief priests answered, We have no king but the emperor. Then Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. I say this is the darkest verse in the scriptures. Why? The chief priests, the leaders of God's people, We have no king but Caesar. Really? They've prostituted themselves to the Roman emperor cult. They're bowing down at the throne of Caesar. Now you might say, look, they just said that. They didn't mean it. They just said it so they could get Jesus killed. Hang on. To get Jesus killed? Jesus, the Christ, God's chosen one. They want to kill him off? Are they on God's side? No way. Jesus' words were right in John chapter 8 when he said, You're trying to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. You cannot accept my word. Because you're from your father, the devil. You choose to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. The truth is, whether or not they meant it when they said it to Caesar, it was true about them. They'd chosen their king, Caesar. They'd rejected God and his Christ. That is the depth to which the people of God had fallen. This is why I took you to Jeremiah 25 before. What was the situation in Jeremiah 25? God's people had abandoned the one true God and God after other gods that weren't gods. What do you see happening here? God's people saying, we have no king but Caesar. They've abandoned the one true God. The situation was worse than ever before because God's own Christ had come among them and they sought to kill him. And yet in the midst of that, here's Jesus doing two things. He steps forward in love. Love for this world that hates him. To take this cup of wrath that should have been theirs. He takes it for them so that they might go free. He does it to create a new people of God around himself. A new people of God who be born from God through faith in Jesus. There's an implicit question, I think, in this trial, and I'll finish with this. The implicit question is this. Who do you choose? Caesar or the Christ? Who do you choose? I think the reason that John has spent so long on this arrest and trial narrative is because here you see Jesus' confrontation with the world in its starkest form. Jesus' confrontation with the the people at the top of the world's hierarchy, the Jewish leaders and the Gentile leaders, with the chief priests and with Caesar's representative. Here's Jesus' confrontation with the world and you see their hatred of him and you see his love for them. That's why John spent so long. Friends, I hope just by looking at this briefly in overview today, you might walk out today with some sort of fresh appreciation of the wonderful love of Jesus, God's Christ, who stepped forward for this world and stepped forward for you. So be encouraged in your belief, in your trust in him. Let me lead us in a prayer. Lord Jesus, we want to thank and praise you for stepping forward for us, accepting the cup from your Father so that we might go free, so that we might have forgiveness and life eternal in your name. Accept our prayers and our praise and our thanks. May we live to your glory. And it's in your name we pray.